what wonderful words we've sung and said and heard. Let's pray. Father, you uh, have called our Lord Jesus Christ what he is, the eternal word. And as we uh, read and seek to learn from your word, uh, would you help not just this week, but uh, we ask especially this morning that both the one who preaches and each of us as we listen to your word together would think more of you than the sermon. We are frail and inadequate in all that we do in the way we listen and the way that we preach. But you are wonderful and your ways of working astound us. So would you work by your word and by your spirit. We give you this time in Jesus' name. Amen. We turn to uh, a section of the Gospel of Luke that we have uh, read as part of a larger text, but I want to come back to it uh, and look in on this shorter passage this fourth Sunday of Advent. Luke chapter 2 beginning in verse 22. And when the time came for their purification, according to the law of Moses, Luke is writing about uh, Mary and Joseph, the baby Jesus, not going into detail, just including them in uh, the pronoun. They brought him, Jesus, up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. And to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Note from those first verses that Jesus is Mary's firstborn, and without saying much about it, he notices that uh, the offering they gave was a small offering. The Torah, the books of Moses, allow for uh, a lot of different levels of expense of offerings. Uh, the one listed here is at the lower end. It's kind of a little pointer that uh, Joseph may have been a uh, a carpenter, or he was a carpenter, or a builder, the term uh, uh, can include both, but not wealthy. They give the smallest gift. Verse 25, now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout. Words that we've heard about Mary, that we've heard about Zechariah, that we've heard about Elizabeth, faithful believers in the God of the covenant with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Not perfect. Mary acknowledges her need of a Savior. Uh, but people that have a habit of life uh, that is pleasing to God in its direction and its devotion. And this man, Simeon, 
middle of verse 25, was waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child, Jesus, to do for him according to the custom of the law, Simeon took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. And his father and his mother marveled at what was said about them. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel, and for a sign that is opposed. And a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin, and then as a widow until she was 84. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. That last verse, I think, is saying that as Anna was coming up into the temple, uh, that was the very time that Jesus, the young child, uh, was being dedicated. And in the providence of God, that which for which she had been longing, uh, the one for whom she had been longing, she met. And she began immediately to give thanks to God and to speak of that child and all that he was to be for Israel and for the nations. And she spoke of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. Her message was especially for those, maybe not to the extent that she did it, but those who were very unhappy with the way things were and were longing for God to bring the consolation of Israel to his people. Revealing hearts, this text is a lot about that, and redeeming Jerusalem. And I'm very thankful for Stephen in the worship planning for looking so closely at passages that were read that speak of the consolation of Israel promised in the prophets. Uh, there are so many in Isaiah, in Ezekiel, in Jeremiah, 
and the other prophets that tell us that God has been planning this consolation of Israel for a long, long time. And the first advent has now begun. So two main points. Number one, right out of the text, Jesus is appointed for the rising and falling of many in Israel. Maybe not the first of our thoughts at Advent and Christmas. That Jesus not only lifts us up, but there is a lowering that will come to some. And he is a sign that is opposed. So in the very prophetic words given as he is but a young babe, the reminder of opposition is there. And the purpose, so that the thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. And what he is and what he says will lift up some and will bring others down. And it will cause everybody to struggle with the reality one way or another from that point on. If you've got uh, the outline that was in the bulletin, you may have looked at my uh, uh, crazy coding with uh, A1, 2, 3, and 4, if you're not uh, used to that kind of thing. It just means all the A's go together, uh, and they're in order, 1, 2, 3, and 4 in the passage. All the B's are about the same idea, and all the C's are about the same idea. It's just a technique, nothing special about it, of uh, a way of looking at big ideas in a text and, uh, and saying, what's really in focus here? And if you look at that uh, with me for just a, a moment, you'll see that uh, it really helps in seeing the emphasis that in verse 25, the phrase, uh, waiting for the consolation of Israel. Well, what is the consolation of Israel? At the essence of it, it's A2 in verse 26. The consolation of Israel is the Lord's Messiah, the Lord's Christ. The consolation has come because the Lord's Christ has come. And that, verse 30, that Lord Christ is your salvation. And verse 32, he is a light. And note the phrase, he's a light for revelation to the Gentiles. Uh, Israel was proud that they had the revelation of God. They had the word of God. They were the people of the book. And this promise says to all who would listen in Israel, this son will in a special way be a revelation not just to the Jews, but to the Gentiles, to the nations, to the ethnicities of the world, ethne nations. And he also will be to the glory of Israel because Israel was to be a light to the nations. So this consolation and this salvation involves all of that. And verse 26 that Simeon would not see death before he had seen this one, and now he could die. It doesn't say he was going to die tomorrow, uh, but his life mission, his longing, uh, God's promises that had come to him by the Spirit uh, are now fulfilled before his eyes. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit, verse 26. Uh, verse 29, according to your word, uh, don't miss that. That's a beautiful insight that is other places in Scripture. The Holy Spirit and the Word are locked together. It's why in uh, Ephesians, Paul talks about uh, 
our being filled with the Spirit is being filled with the Word and the knowledge of God, uh, or being filled with the Spirit, and, and in Colossians, with a parallel passage, I won't take the time to turn to it, he talks about uh, having the Word of Christ dwell in you. And the rest of the words around are almost exactly the same. Because for Paul, if you have the Spirit of God filling you, the Spirit of God ministers the Word of God to you, enlightens it, illumines it, quickens you with it, because the Word is Christ himself and his promises. So it's telling us a lot in this text. And note also that Simeon came in the Spirit into the temple, and he blessed God and said words that God had given him that are part of the promises. A wonderful reality. Uh, think just ever so brief, briefly with me of where we've been the last three Sundays, uh, the first three Sundays of, of Advent. Um, we have all that was revealed by uh, God's word here to Simeon. Uh, the same angel, uh, uh, no doubt, had spoken uh, to Joseph and, and to Mary and to Zechariah and to Elizabeth. Uh, God is emphasizing through Luke, uh, God is putting his imprimatur over and over and over again all the promises of the Old Testament and then all these comings of the presence of the Lord in very specific ways with a very specific singular message about the glory of what is taking place. All of these chapters uh, are not just some nice story. They are the telling of the work and the presence of God among his people. And they're saying to us as the people of God, wake up. This is really important stuff. The message is always about God. Anna speaks of God, praises God, gives thanks to God, and speaks of Jesus, who is God come among them. The message is always about God and revealed in Christ Jesus. Acts 4.12, and there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name given under heaven, under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. That word preached by the apostles in Acts 4 uh, is nothing different than what is said in these texts about Simeon and Anna. It's saying that this one is the only name that God is giving it's the name that God has promised to give, and it is the way of salvation. There is no other name. And I want you to look with me. It's down at the bottom of uh, the first side of the outline, John 16. I'm going to start in verse 6 rather than with 7, which is printed on the outline. Uh, Jesus has been talking in the first verses of John 16 about the fact that he's going away. Uh, and... The response of the disciples is in verse 6, but because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. And that's natural. I mean, step by step, these disciples have been uh, leaving everything behind at great risk. Uh, on the one hand, they're excited. You know, they glory in some of what God is doing through them. On the other hand, they realize trouble's brewing and Jesus is a cause for division. And they're giving up a lot. And now he says he's leaving. Verse 7, Nevertheless, Jesus says, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, let me pause for just a moment. The sending of the helper is not 
just the fact that the Holy Spirit is now sent and the new birth, uh, the new generation, the beginning with Jesus' resurrection of the new age, the age of the Spirit, uh, the first advent, uh, the beginning of the new kingdom is there. I mean, that's big stuff. But it ties to our text because when that Spirit comes with the beginning of the new age, that is the outworking and the fulfilling, not in fullness, but in substance, not without failures, but with substance and success of that very work of bringing consolation to the people and knitting together a people who long for the Lord's redemption uh, as people through the apostles come to Christ. And it comes into our responsibility as a church because the consolation of Israel in the coming of Christ and the pouring out of the Spirit, even though we will stumble and bumble along the way, in significant ways, God will use us to be like Jesus and to point to Jesus in the way that we love others. So this same big idea is being rolled out as Jesus explains his ministry, the consolation of Israel, the redemption of Jerusalem. And so Jesus says, when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. And then he explains what he means. And it's not obvious at first, but when you put it together in the message, I think we can be pretty clear. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Meaning those in Israel and those in the world that are rejecting him. We can talk about a lot of sins in the Bible, but the Bible makes it very clear, the Gospel of John makes very clear, that there's one sin that is bigger than any other sin. In one sense, it is blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. It's to not believe what the Spirit says about the Lord Jesus Christ. Because if that is the sin that you never walk away from, never repent of, then you have abandoned yourself from the only name under heaven by which men and women can be saved. So there's really no greater sin. And we can't badger people into hearing that, but we can love them and serve them and care about them as individuals and care about their struggles and help them see and see more deeply ourselves how radical and wonderful at the center of everything is Jesus. So concerning sin, because they do not believe in me, the one in whom God has come, the one whom God has sent. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father, uh, and you will see me no longer. That's kind of a strange statement, is it? Uh, because I'm going away. Uh, but who can go into the presence of God? Just anybody? Uh, would you like to walk into the presence of God if I could take you outside into it uh, uh, without the covering of the Lord Jesus Christ? I sure wouldn't. Because without Christ and life in Christ, this salvation that God has given, we get the judgment that we deserve. And so I think one of the things Jesus is saying, if you look at the whole Gospel of John, is that the very fact that Jesus is the only one who walked on the earth as a man who can walk right into the presence of God, and not only that, be at his right-hand side, is what we have to be convicted of to fall on our faces before Jesus and begin to trust him and, and follow him. And that there is no other righteousness, so that the gospel of grace by faith alone is right here. Because it's only by faith in this one in whom we must believe 
that we find righteousness in his righteousness because we have none of our own. And so the preaching of this brings humility uh, about our own lives and about the task that we have as the church. And finally, concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. Uh, We often preach about the victory of the cross. Uh, We less often preach about the judgment of the cross. I think I've said it to you before, but I need to hear it a thousand times. You won't hear it that many from me. But there is the reality that uh, when Jesus died for our sins, he condemned the world as well as redeeming the world. And the way and the hope of any life that man and woman can come up with on their own uh, is condemned forever. The verdict of death doesn't get applied to everybody right away, but ultimately that's the verdict of judgment and no place in the new heaven and the new earth that is there. Uh, And by the way, I may have said this, but it hit me years ago, you know, that a lot of people think, well, God's not being fair in, uh, you know, in sending some people to hell, uh, that it's a lot like, I think I was much younger when uh, Disneyland, not Disney World, was first built, and it was a real big deal to go to California and, uh, and see it, and, uh, and I, I use the analogy of, um, why are you saying God's unfair uh, that he won't send people to the equivalent of Disneyland in your mind when maybe some of them don't want to go to Disneyland? So why is it unfair for God to call people into his presence to live uh, in eternal worship and praise of him when they don't have any desire to do that? I think there's an idea of cheap grace in that idea of the exclusivity, that God is just giving out grace and giving everybody a free pass, and why should he give some a free pass and not others? That totally misrepresents what the scripture presents. But the ruler of this this world, the spirit of the air, the one whom Jesus says to some of the Jews who are challenging him, you you are of your father, the devil. He is judged already. And so John, through the spirit, giving Jesus words here, is reminding us that if that one got judged, you think you will get out of the judgment. So this is what the Spirit of God comes to do. And it's a wonderful thing because it sets us free as he brings that wonderful reality to us. Second point. The church and everyone, as did Jerusalem, needs absolutely the redeeming work of Messiah, Jesus, God's anointed one. We've already been saying that. Verse 38, Anna begins to give thanks to God and to speak of Jesus to all who were waiting for the redemption of Israel. Jerusalem needs to be redeemed. Why? Isn't that an interesting turn of phrase, the redemption of Jerusalem? I mean, Jerusalem's there, the temple's there, uh, there are high priests there, Sadducees, Pharisees. I mean, all's good, right? We still got the building, nobody tore it down. But it needs to be redeemed. Think of Jesus' ministry. Jerusalem was to be a light to the nations, but Jesus had to cleanse the temple because the money changers had taken up the largest space in the temple, the court of the Gentiles. And instead of being a light to the Gentiles and welcoming them in, many of the Jewish leaders had become stiff-necked and condescending to those who were different from them and who were the very ones that God was going to use, as we saw in the prophecies in this text. 
uncaring and condescending to outsiders instead of witnesses of grace and mercy. The church needs the same redeeming. Judgment, the scripture tells us several places, always begins with the household of God. And the church's need of ongoing redemption sometimes gets in the way of others seeing Jesus, doesn't it? There are understandable objections that people raise to Jesus and his message and uh, to Christianity, to the church. Uh, the beliefs uh, that people hold uh, about us that are used to keep them from seeing. Uh, there are a number uh, of uh, those objections we could talk about. We can only touch on one and maybe the implications of another or so uh, that can better help us see the significance of what Simeon and Anna reveal. Uh, uh, I frequently, you've noticed, mention books. Uh, a name that you might ought to know that is newer is Rebecca McLaughlin, who was head of the Veritas Forum, Forum uh, a young British uh, woman and she's put out a couple of books in um, the last two or three years. Uh, the first one called Confronting Christianity, 12 Hard Questions for the World's Largest Religion. That's us Christians, 12 Hard Questions. And it is wonderfully rich and deep. Um, if you want the condensed version, which I might suggest you begin with, because then I think it'll make you hungry for the other one, is uh, just this year she came out with a smaller book called 10 Questions Every Teen Should Ask and Answer. Uh, that doesn't give all the background information and there aren't as many footnotes, but it gives the main ideas and the main arguments. Uh, I find sometimes even with all my education, uh, uh, that one's easier to read. <laughs> and it's a great place to start and, and then you can dig in for a little more. But uh, she has some wonderful insights and so I'm borrowing a little bit for her in these last few minutes that we have. Uh, one of the questions, my wording, not hers, isn't saying that Jesus really is the only way to God arrogant? We need to be sensitive to people that ask that because of all the failures of the church. Uh, they've seen enough blunders that uh, they got good reason to ask, how dare you be so arrogant with all the things that have happened you know, over the years? Uh, can't Jesus be true for you, but not for me? Kind of a crazy view of the word truth, but very real view in our day. Uh, I remember reading about this in February of 2019. There was a Nigerian Christian, Uluwole uh, Elesani, uh, who was in London and preached outside the train station. And two police officers came up to him and told him to, uh, to leave or get arrested. And when he didn't move, uh, uh, they said, nobody wants to hear what you're saying. They want you to leave. Leave or get arrested. And he said, I won't leave. And he asked the officers, you don't want to listen to what I'm saying? You will listen when you're dead. You will listen when you're dead, he told to them as they took him to jail. The event matches the biblical description of humans after the rebellion in the garden. We hide from God and distract ourselves, make excuses, blame others, uh, and we find all kinds of ways to avoid the issue. And we all do it. Even after we're Christians, we sometimes do it. Uh, uh, Rebecca tells the story that is in a lot of books, some of you have heard it from, from others, uh, uh, that's often used as an argument uh, against really listening to Jesus uh, as the only one. Uh, it's the story of the, the elephant and the blind people in the village, and the elephant comes into the village, and uh, uh, they hear it and probably smell it, and you know, they go uh, and find it, and you know, one villager grabs around the legs and says, it's like a tree. It's the, the legs are so thick, and uh, another one uh, goes higher and 
the ears flapping and it's creating a breeze. He says it's like a fan and another one grabs around the trunk and it curls and he says it's like a snake and somebody else grabs the tusk and says it's like a spear. And the analogy and the moral of the story uh, is that because they couldn't see the whole elephant and put the pictures together, it's like that with us. Uh, Different religions have different pictures of different aspects of God and reality, so we shouldn't uh, debate one another about which religion is right. Uh, I've seen some people really unnerved by that story over here, some young believers as they've heard it on the campus or, or elsewhere. There are a lot of ways to come at it. Let me tell you what uh, McLaughlin points out uh, very, very quickly. Uh, number one, big problem, the villagers are blind, uh, but the narrator, the one who tells the story then or now, uh, is uh, arrogant and says, we're the only one who can see. And so the very person who's telling you be respectful of people with differences is the one who's disrespectful of you because they tell you, I'm the one who knows the whole story and I have the power to criticize you. I'm in the place of God here is really what they're saying. Though they do it so politely and nicely and winsomely that all of a sudden it rattles us as if this story accomplishes more than it really does. Secondly, she says, and I think this is a great insight, that the story leaves no place for people to rationally change religious beliefs. In other words, if you follow the logic of what many in their books, and some of the new atheists use it, uh, then there's really no rational reason to leave where you are. If, if yours is as good or maybe better, we don't know, uh, than anybody else's. I, I just simply want to remind you this morning that that kind of thinking has played out really well in history, hasn't it? that people aren't allowed to thoughtfully change their beliefs. How many people have been killed and are being killed in countries around the world because they dared to rationally, led by the Spirit of God, change their beliefs? Thirdly, the viewpoint doesn't deal with the serious contradictions in the major religions. To say that they're all the same is pretty crazy. Uh, I can only summarize in about three sentences. Uh, what's the central claim of Christianity? Uh, there are many, but uh, Paul says in Corinthians and especially Second, uh, 1 Corinthians 15 uh, that the resurrection is the center of everything. And if it's not true, uh, then we're fools. Well, one of the things that we can say about the resurrection is whether uh, you believe it or not, uh, it either did happen or it didn't happen. And pretending that all the religions are the same doesn't help you in your understanding at all. Maybe you ought to think about the fact that if it did really happen, then maybe something really special is going on here, and there's a lot of evidence for the resurrection. And if there is no true God, uh, then there's no basis for right and wrong. And we're seeing the fruit of that. And we could talk, and I wish we had more time. Uh, we maybe need to have a service of lament. Uh, and really pray for our community uh, that we would be humble where the church has failed, but that, that people would be honest and not led astray by the, by the narratives that are out there. I mean, the stories, including the University of the Crusades, are so distorted, and it's not that the Crusades were wonderful. There were all kinds of blunders, but uh, they were a pretty legitimate response to the Muslims crusade, Muslim Crusades, and nobody ever starts with that part of the story. You know, we pick and choose a date in history from which we're going to build our narrative and we ignore 
you know, what had happened and how many people were killed and how many lands were taken over and people pushed out of them in the previous centuries and how different the people that really listened to Jesus are um, than the bad things that happened uh, in the Crusades. And he goes on, doesn't it? Th there are those that think religion is the problem. If we could just get rid of it. Some very smart people, intelligent people, say that kind of thing. And yet if you really look honestly, uh, it's the irreligions. Hitler's seven million are uh, horrible. My dad was at Dachau the day it was liberated and couldn't talk about it without weeping. But Stalin's 60 million. In communist China's 30 or 40 million, or nobody knows really what it is. And the million Uyghurs, you know, that are in Nazi-like camps, wives being married off to, bury, uh, to bear babies for others, you know, that are going on right under our nose, show us uh, that the problem's a human problem, you know, not something less than that. Uh, one other quick book reference, Tom Holland, a non-Christian British uh, scholar, historian, wrote a book recently called Dominion, How the Christian Revolution Remade the World. And he's not a believer, but he demonstrates uh, pretty radically that all the good ideas that, uh, that most everybody who's learned in the world say were makes society work and that they had hoped that materialism and secularism uh, could produce, when you're honest and look at history, this is a pagan, they come from Jesus. They come from the influence of the good things God is doing through his church. Israel's consolation, restoration to truth and beauty and goodness, the fruit of God's spirit, God's son and his word. Pray for that redemption to, to blossom. There are so many uh, things that, that we need uh, and all the things that we're in turmoil with, and I've got to tie this together quickly. Uh, you know, one other idea that I'll spend just the briefest time on is, is Jesus really the only way? Isn't Christianity the white man's religion? Uh, well, we could talk for a while and we need to lament. We really need to lament. Uh, I could introduce you to PCA pastors that watched uh, mock lynchings uh, in the late 1970s outside of Birmingham of their older brother when the sheriff was trying to get uh, uh, him to tell them something about the yet older brother the sheriff was looking for. Jim Crow is not long in the past. We ought weep and, and know how bad things have really been at times, even in the church. And yet no other faith has been as diverse as the church. None compares to bringing people from every ethnicity. I mean, it was dark-skinned people that wrote the Bible, brown-skinned people in the Middle East. Uh, you know, the, the gospel was in India, if not during the time of the apostles, uh, my African uh, friends, uh, I've spent six, three-week or so trips over there uh, in the last 10, 15 years uh, training pastors and elders, and, and one of the things they say, isn't it interesting, uh, we put the Bible in every tribal language we can put it into, uh, but Islam, they only know how to read one language, and everybody has to read it. You've got to become part of that narrow culture. Uh, I think it's interesting from their two-thirds world perspective, but there's such beauty in our Jesus, and we each have to be committed to learn and grow. I've made plenty of mistakes, but I'll tell you, I have seen uh, beauty. Uh, as a new Christian, I was uh, confronted with, uh, for the first time, uh, those struggling with uh, their same-sex attraction and, and 
thinking I shared it and some of my best friends uh, were those guys. And by God's grace, I learned to keep the friendships. And I had a lot to learn. I was really new, and I can't say I've done it right all the way through the years. But the beauty of, of following Jesus, uh, uh, I had a chance, Mary Nell and I met in a singles group in Miami, and uh, the head of Youth for Christ called me one Monday morning, and he had led a young man to Christ uh, on his radio program just after midnight. Uh, 20 years old. His mom involved him in incest. His mom involved him in drugs. He'd been a male prostitute. Uh, and I was so honored that uh, Ted, the head of Youth for Christ in Miami, said, when I thought of what church I could dare call the pastors, uh, I thought of Key Biscayne Press, PCS. And, uh, and without telling more than a handful of people just to watch out for him and for others, uh, he became a wonderful part for a year until he moved out of state of our singles group. That's the beauty of both holding to the truth but loving people. Uh, my East African bishop, I almost want to weep, is uh, on, on my iPad this morning when I sat down in the worship center. Uh, bishop John Laquango's picture came up and I almost cried. I, I could tell, talk to you about him for hours. He's planted 150 churches at least uh, in Kenya and Uganda and Rwanda. Uh, but the way he dealt with Muslims, including Muslims who were threatening his life, by hosting them and honoring and giving a bicycle, which is like giving a small car in their culture, uh, to this man that was threatening his life because the guy's wife had become a Christian. Um, that's the beauty of the gospel of grace when we really do in significant ways love uh, our enemies. Uh, I had the chance to counsel a session who hired a same-sex struggling guy uh, as a staff member who was used so greatly in their ministry uh, and, and his life. Uh, that was a PCA church. I'm so proud of the good open things and the maturity that is growing, and yet we've got a long way to grow. Uh, my acquaintance Dick Gleason, I only was with him four or five times, ran a ministry on the south side of Chicago uh, uh, Christian Center with about 200 late high schoolers and teens. Uh, could tell you story after story, but maybe this will tell you something. Uh, Malcolm X used to come to the Christian Center and the kids, some of whom I met, used to witness to Malcolm X and say he was so wonderful, why aren't you a Christian? And when Malcolm was assassinated, Sister Betty, Malcolm's wife, called my acquaintance Dick. And as far as he knows, he was the only white man who was at Malcolm's funeral. And he couldn't get a cabbie to take him within blocks. But he managed to walk the rest of the way and, and get in. The beauty of the gospel, and I could go on and on. I may have mentioned, so I'll just say it in 15 seconds. Uh, my last year at Northwestern when I was already on crew staff uh, was the first anniversary of Martin Luther King Jr.'s assassination. And Martin Sr. preached at First Methodist Church, Evanston, and his sermon was on the inescapable Christ. I think that they thought it was going to be a eulogy of delight in his son. And Martin just talked about what he taught his son. And that the one thing we needed to deal with is you can't escape Jesus. He's the only one and the only way. And he humbled anybody who had ears to hear in that room, including some of us up in the balcony that were praying and, and crying in the beauty of the gospel. I end with this. Um, some of you have heard G.K. Chesterton, uh, the great writer and apologist, uh, 
of the early 20th century uh, quoted as answering the question for a newspaper, uh, uh, what's wrong with the world, simply by saying, I am G.K. Chesterton. Uh, I got challenged on a quotation a few weeks ago, which I haven't gotten back to the person that asked me the question, and I can't find the source. So I'm, I'm beginning to be more careful again on my sources. So I found the source for J.K. Chesterton's quotation. Here it is, and we're done with this. Uh, it's on, uh, part of it is on uh, your uh, outline. Uh, in one sense, uh, and that the eternal sense, the thing is plain. The answer to the question, what is wrong, is or should be, I am wrong. Until a man can give that answer, his idealism is only a hobby. Any of us, believer or unbeliever, that struggles with issues of justice in our world and doesn't come to that conclusion, doesn't begin to know the realities and the depths of them. Here's what came before those words in Chesterton's letter to the editor for another paper. The paper, by the way, that Charles Dickens started, one of uh, Chesterton's heroes. One thing, of course, must be said clear to clear the ground. Political or economic reform will not make us good and happy. But until this odd period, nobody ever expected that they would. That was 1905. We're still kind of there, aren't we? <laughs> now, I know there is a feeling that government can do anything, but if government could do anything, nothing would exist except government. Men have found the need of other forces. Religion, for instance, existed in order to do what law cannot do, to track crime to its primary sin and the man to his back bedroom, in other words, where he hides his secrets. The church endeavored to institute a machinery of pardon. The state has only a machinery of punishment. The state can only free society from the criminal. The church sought to free the criminal from the crime. Abolish religion if you like. Throw everything on secular government if you like. But do not be surprised if a machinery that was never meant to do anything but secure, secure external decency and order fails to secure internal honesty and peace. If you have some philosophic objection to brooms and brushes, throw them away, but don't be surprised if the use of the county water cart, think a pressure washer you could bring in to clean the dust out of your house. I've never used my pressure washer in the living room. Uh, should I start right now? And every day we must take, I say this, uh, the focus away from even the church as an institution or from the cult cultures deeply engaged with revealed biblical religion like Britain and America and some others have been in the past. Uh, because, you know, why is there a problem with the church? Because our sin is such that men and women of every color and race and ethnicity will seek a theology of glory rather than the theology of the cross. We will want to build an institution and beautiful buildings and tell the world, see how great Christianity is? even though we don't want to listen to some of the hard words of Jesus. And by the way, whatever your struggle or background with faith or lack of faith or issue, uh, uh, it's been said a lot of times, Tim Keller said it you know, so well, that uh, uh, if the God you believe in doesn't contradict you quite often, he's obviously not God. So if you don't find the scripture challenging the socks off of your perspective uh, with some regularity, we're not really reading it. We need to run to the presence of Jesus himself whose teaching tells us the way life was meant to be and the way the consolation and the redemption must come.
O holy night, the stars are brightly shining. It is the night of our dear Savior's birth. Long lay the world in sin and error pining till he appeared and the soul felt its worth. Because the only way a rebellious human soul can ever know they have a worth that will last and can ever come to the place where Paul says, it's a small thing to me to be judged by you or any human court. I'm not thereby acquitted, but it's God who judges me, not you. Paul knew that his worth came when Jesus was born. It existed before that, but God proved it and he humbled it. He, God has made it so easy for you to come to Christ. I, instead of uh, coming with power and browbeating you and pressuring you and demanding that the community lead you into it, he said, here I am in weakness and helplessness. That's how far I'm willing to go to get out of the way and let you know what you really need and how safely you can approach. So brothers and sisters, or if you're seeking Christ and not yet in that full sense in Christ's family, don't run away. See the beauty and know it didn't come from nowhere. By the way, one book I read recently uh, gave statistics that even secular charities get more money from Christians than they do from secularists. You think about that.